You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Aaron Ferguson and Zach Rhodes. Uh, they co-host the Social Exchange Podcast, where they talk a lot about uh, addiction issues and how that affects the individuals, their families, society, uh, and you know, all the issues surrounding it. So uh, glad to have you guys. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks a lot, Richard. Yeah. So what, what's the backstory? Why uh, focus on these issues? You know, unfortunately, you know, my guess is that you know people that. Uh, have had addiction problems or, you know, God forbid, had them yourself, but what's what's your backstory and why you did this? I mean, I'll take it from Zach speaking. I'll, I'll kick it off and then I'll go to Aaron to uh, clean up the mess I make. But um, <laughs> I started off, I, I work with children and with families. I do family counseling. And so I started a podcast years ago that was just about child development, child rearing, human development. And I supposed that I'd have maybe 10 to 50 listeners. That is what I started having. And all of a sudden, I started getting tons of emails one day um, until sort of sort of from one show to the next, I had about I had thousands of listeners. Um, I tried to reach out across domains and to people who had pretty big names or were respected either collegially or they were writers. So I did a show with Peter Singer. Uh, he's a philosopher from Australia. And after that show, I don't know if it was, if it was because I interviewed him, probably, uh, the show sort of blew up and I all of a sudden had a responsibility to produce content for people who are interested in specific things. And I'm getting a lot of emails and um, encouragement to continue the show. So I ended up sort of floundering on what to do. I just It was sort of a random assortment of topics. And I came to a point, I interviewed another man named Peter Hitchens, He's the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens. And the interview was absolutely terrible. It was terrible because he really? and I started talking about this topic of addiction. We didn't understand each other. We had a, a very bad miscommunication sort of a conversation. And then we were, my followers trolled him, his trolled mine. I wound up taking the podcast down. And hmm. from then on, I decided to create a show whose premise is, the way that we have constructive conversations. And so that was the social exchange. I decided to focus on sociopolitical issues, um, you know, social psychology, and my field, which is child development and now addiction. I just co-authored a book with a, an addiction expert named Stanton, Dr. Stanton Teal called Outgrowing Addiction. Since then, we've just, that has been the, the platform for the show. And I listened to my previous show, and when I reached out across my social media for help, he was among a few people who offered to help, and he is really. I don't think that the show probably would have gone on 
without his assistance. And so from then on, we've been just creating show after show with people who are, um, you know, highly known intellectuals or just people with something to say, whether it's controversial or not. And now we've gotten into the field of, of addiction more than not because the people who have listened to the show didn't know anything about me and have known anything about Aaron were already sort of focused that way. So it started off a pretty broad show. Now it's a show almost almost solely about arm reduction and addiction. So that's my story, and I'll let I'll let Aaron give his version. Hopefully it's similar. Okay. Yeah, so um, I came a little later to the game with the Social Exchange podcast. Um, I came across Zach actually on Facebook, and he was like, I have 30 interviews that are sitting around on my desk here, and I'm trying to figure out how to piece them all together. And um, I've had audio production as a hobby. Um, aside from other things that I've done, I've been working as an addiction counselor for about eight years. Um, right now, I'm a, a community advocate for medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. But um, in my free time, spare time, I like producing. So, you know, I came across Zach and he had all this uh, audio and was interested in doing a series uh, related to what's been called the opioid crisis um, mm. which we really discovered is a bit of a misnomer. It's more of a crisis that people are actually dying than that they're using opioids. But that spawned into a three-part series in which we really delved deep and interviewed a ton of people. Zach interviewed quite a few experts, interviewed quite a few uh, pain patients, so people who had been adversely affected by the CDC guidelines on uh, cuts to prescribing, um, and we were able to tell kind of an untold story at that time in the news. It's gotten a little bit more visibility now. Um, so that was sort of my gateway into the show. And since then, um, it's been really enjoyable participating in this climate of open discussion um, on our Facebook page and trying to cultivate uh, an attitude, a disposition of going where the evidence leads having respectful dialogue and honest disagreements where those exist in search of the truth. Um, we find that in the field of addiction, there is probably more debate than any other field of medicine. There's quite a big schism taking place between this sort of traditional notion that people need to be abstinent from all substances in order to improve their lives and the notion that we can support people if they're not quite ready to meet that ideal uh, with any positive change that they can make um, and allow them to set the goal. So those are two sort of different ends of a spectrum. And having a show that is focused on developing a dialogue that is aimed at discovering the truth in a way that's respectful of different viewpoints in this particular avenue has been really useful. I think, um, it, and it's much needed. So it's been an enjoyable experience participating in the show with Zach. So what what are some of the viewpoints that you've come across lately that, I don't know, were new to you or surprising? You want to go, Zach? Yeah, I'm trying to think about, I've come across new viewpoints all the time. That's sort of a function of the type of atmosphere I'm trying to create, and I, that I do create. And so I, I'm going into conversations with a completely open mind, of course, with some ideas about what I think is true, and of course, with the worldview. Um, but I sort of just 
lately absorb information or absorb other people's arguments um, pretty swiftly, and I'm able to, you know, I have a system of sort of peeking through what I think is true or not. So I'm trying to just think about, there's nothing lately that I've come across that is extremely surprising, but I can see what a lot of people listening um, to your show right now might be surprised about. So, and I write about this in my book, Outgrown Addiction, of the people who do drugs, this is particular to the addiction field, of course, about 80 to 90% of those people don't become addicted to the drugs, even if it's drugs like heroin or methamphetamine. And a lot of people are really surprised by that. And people are even more surprised to learn what is shown in robust government surveys and studies that even the people who become addicted to drugs, like what a lot of people call or, or say are hard drugs like heroin and meth, coke, um, about 80 to 90% of them, if not more, overcome those addictions over time without any professional help. They naturally outgrow their addictions and mature to more flourishing lives. And so I think that is a, that's something that people don't, haven't thought about, at least not on that basis. And so that, that leaves us with the fact that there still is a problem with people dying. These numbers are only true if people can live long enough to grow long enough to out to have other addictions. Um, but yeah, those, those are some numbers that might be surprising to a, a lot of people listening now. Well, I mean, physically, as you get older, you know, for instance, with drinking, people say, oh, I can't drink like I used to. I can't do what I used to. So maybe thankfully, you know, the body not being able to tolerate it anymore or not being so fun anymore or, you know, the, the come down from it being worse and worse and worse. Hopefully that's like a, a big thing that stops people naturally from uh, doing the drugs. Well, absolutely. I think that what ends up happening is that people have a value system and addiction by definition, or at least per my definition. And Aaron, I don't know. We, I think we share almost at least maybe 98, 99% of our views here, but step in any time. By my definition of addiction, it's just addiction is the relationship that people form with either a drug or an involvement or an activity that they do despite negative, maybe even destructive consequences. And then they do it repeatedly over time. And so that by definition, people are violating sort of their own medium to long-term values and own interests in favor of something that gives them a, a more immediate experience. So what you just said is so practical and so common sense that you're not, you're almost not allowed to say it in, in the, in front of addiction treatment experts, because it's so, it's so simple yet true that it, it almost feels like, well, why are we even having this discussion in the first place? Well, it's by no means a panacea. It's just one of those things that, uh, you know, helps you maybe not in a way you like, but it helps you to uh, to get out of that bad, bad behavior, you know, the addiction. Because, again, you just feel like awful every time you smoke meth or whatever it is you do. It's more likely you're going to stop. I mean, there's even treatments like that, that, you know, you, you'll take a substance that makes you sick every time you drink alcohol. So, therefore, you don't want to drink alcohol anymore. I mean, it's just the body mimicking that in a natural way. So, yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, so a, a little bit of what um, what harm reduction, the philosophy of harm reduction engenders is this idea that there are actually benefits from all drug use, um, but that there are also obviously detriments. Um, much of the research and much of the conversation that's taken place in our culture has been highlighting the negatives and sort of honing in on the downsides which obviously if you have an illegal substance that people are ingesting, they're going to have negative repercussions. 
Um, we have an unregulated market for substances, the quantity and quality of which is not known most of the time. And so people are naturally going to have negative consequences from that. But to just to humanize the issue, the philosophy is that people take these substances for a reason and not because they're stupid um, and that they do provide benefits, that there are benefits to all mind-altering activities or substances um, that make those things attractive to people. And it can almost be radical to even recognize that um, in, in a culture that seems hell-bent on convincing us all that drugs are evil and that drugs are the cause of the problem. Um, what we've tried to do, I think, a lot with the social exchange and what Zach has tried to do is to sort of broaden the definition of addiction beyond just drugs and to broaden it beyond just over-medicalized mentality around it. So instead of saying, this is the result of specific faulty neurons in your brain that can only be fixed through complete abstinence, we're taking a look at the social determinants of health. So what is it in a person's environment? What is it around them that could be contributing to this problem other than just the chemical properties of the substance, if that makes any sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I mean, <clears throat> some people could say addiction stems from a, a horrible family environment or adversity, economic, emotional, whatever it is. You know, some people could say addiction stems from, you know, a percentage of it comes from bad breakups and other ones come from childhood abuse or poverty or you know, all kinds of stuff, you know? So the social context is critical. Like my wife had a, you know, she was hospitalized for a bunch of days and they gave her opioids and they said, here you go. Here's some opioids. Have a nice life. Bye. And I had to read up on it and say, Oh shit, these things are really addictive. I better like, you know, immediately start trying to help her taper off of them before we have a problem. But the doctors are like, you know, like, Oh, see you later. Here you go. They don't care. You know, and then we could have had a, a terrible issue with them, you know? So the social so context is like every, everything to me, everything. Yeah, that's an interesting road to go down. My co-author and colleague and, and also Aaron's colleague, Stanton Peel, he'll go to, I mean, he's a prolific writer about this topic and, and a psychologist and fairly well-known. He's had a few best-selling books. He'll go to a conference and ask, first of all, hey, what's the toughest addiction to quit, you guys think? And people who have read up on the topic know that statistically speaking, at least, and probably practically speaking too, smoking is the toughest uh, addiction to quit. So everyone will scream out smoking and, you know, it'll be a room full of like 500 people. And then they'll say, all right, well, raise your hand if any of you have quit smoking. And, you know, like 50, 60% of them will raise their hand. And, you know, then that leaves you with this. You say, wow, you just told me that the, the toughest addiction to possibly quit, more than half of you have quit. How'd you do it? which leads almost necessarily to the answers, well, I had a kid or, um, you know, things, whatever it is that I, I was worried about my health or my wife hated the smell of cigarettes all the time and she wanted me to quit or else she was going to separate with me. But that leads us to talking about opioids, which is not the toughest addiction to quit, even though it's up there. Um, Danton will do the same thing at a conference. I like talking about this because I think it's a, a nice little exercise. And you'll ask people, how many of you have ever taken a painkiller? And that's virtually everybody, like if you've had wisdom teeth out, tonsils removed. And you'll ask, well, how many of you are addicted to them or got addicted to them? And very few people ever raise their hand. And interestingly, it's usually you know, speaking at a college or a conference. And so these people are well-to-do and they have, they have worthwhile lives. They have a status and they're connected. 
And I said, why, why didn't you guys become addicted to them? I thought that they had this, you know, ostensibly they had this chemical hook and draw. And if you take them, who knows if you'll become addicted? And people's answers are, well, I didn't become addicted because they sort of felt like shit. But I, when I uh, stopped taking them, I didn't want it to be like that anymore. Or uh, I just wasn't in pain anymore, so I stopped taking them. Very practical reasons. So there's, while I understand what you're saying, there's a feel that um, you have a substance that, that we've heard causes is an immediate cause of death or an immediate cause of an addiction, and doctors are prescribing them. On the other hand, those things are very, those drugs, opioids are very useful. And as Aaron was talking about before, we did a series. Um, and, and by the way, a very, very, very small percentage of people who become addicted, and especially who become addicted long term, are people who are prescribed opioids from, from the doctor's office. I mean, that that is a range of an estimate, but that goes anywhere from 1% to 16% of people who have been prescribed opioids. So there are people who, if we're going to curb those prescriptions, it's almost like, what do you want the doctor to do, not you know, be more careful at prescribing? Then if we're, we're too careful at prescribing, people who really need them aren't getting them, even though most people don't. No, not, in that regard, I'm not talking about the prescribing end. I'm talking oh. about if you're going to prescribe something like that, prepare the person for what happens next, which they're not doing from what I've seen. It's not the prescribing. You know, it's necessary. If people's in pain, fine, have the stuff, but let them know, hey, we're giving you this, but it has a high potential to do A, B, and C if you do that, or if you just stop taking a cold turkey, it can really hurt you or whatever. You know, it's going to, the pharmacist doesn't even tell you much. They go, oh, here you go. You know, bye. You're saying there That's, should be informed informed consent across the board, whether it's prescribing or just <laughs> the exchange of, of information between a doctor and a patient. I couldn't agree with you more, of course. Yeah. Opioids, yeah. yeah. And then another thing that, that you brought up, um, the different, just because something is in my mind, again, if it's legal or illegal, that has nothing to do with it being good or bad. I mean, right. smoking yeah. cigarettes is legal. Uh, drinking alcohol is legal. Marijuana is not legal, or some state, most states it's not still. Um, but yeah. you know, plenty of people argue that it's far less harmful. And that's um, that's so also, yeah, I would agree with that. That's also, I would say, the reason why uh, the war on drugs has not been successful. So, um, if we take this approach that you know certain substances are inherently more addictive than others, so we need to ban them. Um, there is a notion that doing that will actually result in a decrease in engagement with those substances, which has been quite well proven to not be the case when it comes to the war on drugs. You know, we have about a hundred years now of prohibition when it comes to um, certain substances that has not resulted in a decrease in engagement with them and rates of addiction have actually gone up drastically during that period. Um, and so what, what I would caution against is the same mentality being applied to prescribing that has been applied to the war on drugs. The idea that, well, we just need to keep these substances out of people's hands in order to prevent addiction um, when we know for a fact that that's not the case. And I think what you're saying is that if people have accurate information about what they're putting in their body, they're going to have a better outcome. Am I understanding that? Yeah, I think that would help. And, you know, again, I just think people draw artificial lines of good and bad just because something's legal or illegal. That's that's really the two points I'm trying to make. Is that, yeah, you know, just, at least to me, so what if it's legal or illegal? It doesn't matter. It could Absolutely. be horrible or it could be wonderful or both. 
Your body doesn't know the difference between whether it's legal or illegal, and your body also doesn't know the difference between there's some people think it's harmful or some people don't. And I'll I'll make this statement and see if we can go. You can take it wherever you'd like. I'm going to be bold and say drugs are not addictive. That drugs don't addict people. Well, what what does then? Well, that gets us back into the conversation about a person's context in life. So that's what Aaron was saying this out earlier that you know we make the case that people can be addicted. Addiction is real because it's a real experience that people have. It's the same process, whether it's drugs or a love relationship or an involvement with food or or sex, any of those things, gambling, to the extent that you're doing those things to compensate for something you can generate somewhere else in life. And you're doing those things in a way that detracts from your ability to generate new, better experiences for yourself. So if you said that drugs were addictive, you'd then have to say that sex is addictive. You'd have to say that food is addictive. And I'm just saying people can be addicted and they can be addicted and the object of their addiction could be any of those things. But drugs or sex or food don't have something in them that inherently makes somebody addicted to them. And then uh, I think it's... Yeah, and I think it's good to clarify here the difference between chemical dependency and addiction. Um, if, If a person takes one of these substances for a sufficient period of time, their body can become chemically dependent on it and they may experience physical withdrawal symptoms from ceasing to take it. That we are differentiating from addiction, which is a psychological relationship with an activity or substance that meets needs that a person doesn't know how to meet otherwise, and that they will engage in despite adverse consequences in their life compulsively. Um, So that's a little bit of something that's been conflated historically. Those two concepts have been conflated, and they're actually quite different. There are many things that people can be chemically dependent on and not be addicted to them. If that makes any sense, well, that's true. Yeah, that makes total sense. You're right because, and what the trend has been is calling everything an addiction: food, sex, drugs, this, that, and the other behaviors. But you're right. I mean, if you could look at one baseline in a well-adjusted person that you know, I don't know, is happy by whatever metrics. Um, how addictive is a given activity? You know, smoking versus uh, in a person that has problems in their life. You know, stress again, poverty, whatever it is. And maybe evaluate a substance in, in terms of that context. You know, maybe what makes, uh, for instance, a drug addictive in the traditional sense is that when someone is not operating under ideal conditions, that they're more likely to use that thing as a crutch and therefore get addicted psychologically to it. Maybe that's a better definition, definition of it. I don't know. And these are just hearing you talk about that sort of brings me to the topic of the show that you said that you speak about. Futurism, artificial intelligence, um, maybe technology. We're ha- the conversation that we're having around this is much more complex than most of the conversation that's taking place in mainstream addiction treatment. And with that, there's a lot of innovation that's needed. With the number of people that are dying, with the problem that we're experiencing as a culture, it's going to require science, innovation, technology, probably artificial intelligence. Because now we're starting to measure social determinants. We're talking about things, variables that are far beyond our current tools to manage and to be able to measure. Um, So so that's uh, what I think would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess I, I rail against this all the time. There's just a lack of nuance in so many things. Like, like look what we just talked about with addiction. You know, how often is it even mentioned? There's psychological addiction, addiction. Then there is maybe like habituation type addiction. Then there's chemical dependency addiction. You know, and then what um, what makes something addictive or not addictive? You know, if you have a substance that, you know, let's say uh, sex versus uh, heroin. You know, sex, when you when you have sex, you feel good and all that, but you don't necessarily go into a withdrawal where you feel terrible afterwards. But heroin, that happens. So does that make it more addictive or less addictive because of the nature of the effect it has on you in the aftermath? You know, so there's, I think you guys are right. There's tons more nuance that could be talked about that's never touched upon. And it, I think it's easy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it that way. I would, yeah, I, I agree that there's a, there's a lack of nuance for sure. And I take fully that it's a compliment that you're saying that we're talking about something in a nuanced way. It's just that even now we can't get, we're not getting past the fact that I'm saying, I'm really saying nothing is addictive. A person's experience, depending on what they need and what they feel and what they want and the ways that they try to achieve it and the resources and abilities they have to achieve it in one way or another, those are things that make somebody addicted to something I don't even think it's a worthwhile conversation to have to talk about which thing or which drug is more addictive. And what what I was what I, I was kind of I think that's yeah I think that's way of an overstatement. That's like what would come out of you know a company that produces cigarettes. You know because there are foods that are engineered to create a chemical dependency and based on people's psychology and based on you know even the most well-adjusted happy person, there are definitely foods that are engineered to get that person to engage with that food more often and form a habit with it. Same thing with casinos. Casinos are deliberately engineered. So same thing with cigarettes. I mean, I, I wouldn't go that far and say nothing is addictive, but yeah. So you can, you can deliberately engineer something and to be a product that you know, that consumers of your product are going to do compulsively. That's sure. But how do you think they, how do you run that algorithm? So if you, are doing something in a casino, you know, you know your clientele. You're not making something with a chemical that addicts you. This isn't a brain implant. I'm, what I'm trying to say is that you can. There are things that, by the way people behave and the way people act and the experiences that they have in their lives, the things that they want, the things that they value, the things that they buy and need. You can create a product that you could be pretty sure people are going to use in an addictive way, but you're not going to create a chemical that is more addictive than some other chemical on the basis of it being a particular chemical. That just hasn't happened yet. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and well, what I was saying... Is you can, you what, can what engineer I, anything to be addictive. Look at Facebook. Look at social media. It doesn't have to be chemical, but they're they're fucking with your right. behavior and they know it right. and they've tested it just like a casino. So addiction, I think, encompasses a lot of things, not just chemicals, but it's, it, a it, whole lot more. Yeah. It's it's what, certainly. How does that contradict what what is what is the contradiction between what you said and what I said? Well, I think there is room for deliberately, and, and just in the specific chemical side, there is. If you have an understanding of human physiology, there is a way to put chemicals into a substance that you create that people ingest or use to form a chemical dependency, which is part of the addiction. And maybe I mean, even so, a psychological influence, you know. So we well, like what our basic. Our, under, our current understanding of the brain is not really capable of making the claim that 
X equals Y. So the, the current state of neuroscience and addiction treatment is claiming that because of the amount of dopamine that a given activity or substance creates in the brain, that is the deciding factor in what makes it addictive or not. That hypothesis in and of itself has a lot of problems. Um, dopamine hasn't panned out to be the thing that it once was thought to be. And we've had some people on the show, some neuroscientists talking about this. But um, wh what I was saying when it comes to futurism and when it comes to technology and how this ties into, I think, the, the topic of the show is that it's a lot easier to measure brain chemistry than it is to figure out the interaction between the environment and the brain to figure out the action, the interaction between genes and the environment. You know, epigenetics is in its own self, just an emerging sort of field of science. And if we are myopic about this, yes, you know, we can all agree that the brain is affected. The genes are affected by the environment, by things we put in our body in different ways. We've evolved to find some things more attractive than others. Um, and, and so those are all things that we can reasonably agree on in a scientific manner. But what we can't do and what we haven't come to understand yet is how these things interact with the environment. And when we're talking about addiction, the conversation is heavily weighted in the direction of biology, where we don't even understand biology enough to say that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between a specific neuron or a specific set of reactions in the brain and what we're calling addiction. Um, they're not even to the point where they can look at a person's brain and not know what's going on and be able to say, yep, that person's addicted and look at another person's brain and not know what's going on and say they're not. Um, so we're not doing science until we can do something like that. Um, and, and so what we're saying is we need to be paying attention to the social determinants of why some people become addicted or not. Yes, we have to pay attention to the chemistry and the biology of it. But we can't be reductionist about it when there's an absence of technology, when there's an absence of information or evidence to support the claims that are being made. Yeah, well, I think saying that uh, there's nothing happening on the chemical side just because we don't understand the brain fully means that we should assume nothing's happening. I mean, that to Who me is reductionist that? as well. Well, that's what I got from what you're saying. It seems like you're saying, well, you thought that there's I no said proof that, should, that, uh, that nothing is happening chemically. Yeah, that's what I got from it. Yeah. That that would make no. I, I mean, all I'm saying is that to say that something is happening chemically is so tautological and obvious that it, it, it it's saying it is just like saying the color blue is a color. I, I mean, and then we can then jump into the conversation about what you would do to make progress. So hey, look, our our show is about trying to figure out what is the salient information that we need to capture and understand. Um, in order to make a coherent claim about how to make progress. I think that the salient information that we need in order to make a claim about progress will have to have something to do about, it will have to have something practical that can be applied to it. So we can talk, I mean, I think that maybe we need to know a little more about each other and maybe we need to have a longer period of time to discuss our, our framework more. But, but we can't, I mean, no one is diagnosed let's say, on a brain scan. And any clinician or therapist or anyone working mental health treatment or addiction treatment worth his or her weight in salt, nobody's going to um, tell people, you know, treat people on the basis of their, 
of their brains firing or chemical chemicals, you know, doing something or reacting in their bodies. The only way that you can help a human being is to treat them in purely human terms. So we, I think what we're running into here, even in this conversation, is that there is a, there is a language system that has been visited upon people with addictions that is leading to conversations and solutions that's not necessarily in their best interest. And the reason for that is that people who have addictions and people's environment and context of their lives is not being examined and they're not being part of the conversation. So if any, if there's any uh, confusion about what we're saying, I think I could say that, and I, I would bet that you would agree to that at least. I wouldn't agree. I mean, I would say that because Dr. Daniel Amen, who looks at brain scans, and uh, he's getting quite a bit of information, according to him, on you know how to treat people or evaluate if they have an addiction or not. So okay. I think it's it's really opinion. I don't I don't think that. Uh, you know, I think it encompasses it all, and we should leave room for for all of this in the conversation. I don't yeah. think we should say, well, of course, you know, anyone that knows anything would say this or not say that. I don't think that's true. I think that's like your opinion of it. I'm not, I'm just saying, I that's how I understood your opinion to be. Maybe I'm wrong, no problem, but I'm just letting you know that's how I understood your opinion to be. If it's not right, that's okay. Yeah, and you know, so I I think that one of the things that we come up against with trying to explain something like addiction is that it's an incredibly difficult thing to measure in the first place. We have trouble agreeing as a society on what it even is. Um, and, and with that, we're also, there's a tendency to grasp for easy explanations in any situation where there's an absence of evidence. And it's probably a lot easier to reduce things to neurons and say, okay, well, if we can just introduce a drug that prevents addiction, that would be great. Then to measure like the countless variables that are involved in social conditioning, for instance, or in, um, it, it, you know, the field of sociology is often called a soft science, for instance. And there are a lot of people who believe that um, the social sciences themselves are soft sciences. Um, for the very fact that so many of the things that we're trying to measure are so elusive. Um, and, you know, with the economics being called the abysmal science, where every time we think we've got how people behave figured out, they surprise us and behave in a different way. So what I would caution against is, is not to say that these people are all out of their minds, looking at the brains, trying to find an answer, but that we not seek for, seek out easy answers to this, um, and that we need to employ the tools of science more broadly construed to be able to understand the issue better. Um, it's it's going to take an understanding from multiple angles, but what we do know is that people respond to alternative reinforcers in their life. So if a person's brain was hijacked fully by the chemical properties of a substance, they wouldn't be able to choose some alternative activity or engagement to that thing. That thing will have taken complete control over their free will and their ability to choose otherwise. And that's not what we see in the lived experiences of people. We see people routinely deciding to no longer engage in these behaviors. And when you ask them why, they'll tell you it's because their husband was important to them or because their children were important or because they wanted something more from life. Um, and so we can engage people with these alternative reinforcers without completely disregarding the biology without completely disregarding 
um, the more hard sciences, I guess, as you might call them. Yeah, no, I agree. It needs a much, again, I, I call it a more nuanced and uh, inclusive approach, not just any one thing. But even you get, I mean, look at the language, the hard science or a soft science. As soon as you allow something to be called the soft science, you're demeaning it, you're deprecating it. And you're saying other sciences, they're quote unquote better, they're hard, they're more rigorous. I would agree. That's going to lead people to discount what they call soft, aka weak. Right. I I would agree with that. It's just that I think that even if we know everything down to the level of particle physics, we can't make any predictions about who's going to win the next election based on that. Right. So I think that, you know, there, there are certain things like physics that have been pretty well hammered out. Like we understand universal constants. We understand quite a bit about certain fields of science and that doesn't make them more scientific. It's just that our understanding is more complete when it comes to addiction. Our understanding is incredibly incomplete. Um, we understand that certain things work. So harm reduction is based on certain tenets that are based on evidence. They're ba- it's based on uh, research showing that certain things actually do reduce overdoses and that if people stay alive, their likelihood of recovery is quite high. So the tools of science have been applied quite effectively in those areas. But for the most part, we're dealing with a chasm of ignorance and people stepping into that chasm and making claims left and right that may or may not be supported by the evidence. And knowing how to sift through that requires a functional baloney detector to know even how to interpret information. And that in itself is a defining challenge of our culture is just how do people interpret information? How do people tell what's true or not? And Zach and I did an episode on the epistemology of addiction. And when you hear a given claim, how do you tell whether it's true? Is it because it's coming right. from an hard, a hard scientist? Oh, well, it's coming from a hard scientist. It must be true. Um, you know, it's cultivating skepticism and going where the evidence leads. And then we can have a reasonable disagreement and be open to going where the evidence leads because our beliefs are not based on things other than than the facts. I gotcha. Yeah. I think it's a, it's just a worrying thing. This is nothing to do with you guys, but you know, we said earlier or you said earlier that uh these these high level conversations don't appear to be happening in a lot of treatment centers. So I think that's a something that needs to be addressed. I don't know how you'd address it, but you know, I just wanted to point that out. Addiction treatment is the only field purporting to be medicine where spirituality and prayer and religion are prescribed as the cure. Um, And that is in about 80 to 90% of addiction treatment facilities in the country that espouse the 12 step approach. Um, Those approaches are community-based organizations that I think should be voluntary, but they have no place in medicine. They have no place purporting to be medicine and they have no place charging people 30 to $60,000 a month for that type of treatment. Hmm. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. It's a very, it's a very well, different. Right. It's a very different sort of field that we're dealing with. But I do think that technology, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, futuristic ideas, are they all play into this because there's so little that we know, and there's so much mm. lacking in our knowledge about this that all those things are going to play a role in us getting a better understanding of it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's been a great conversation. I'm not uh, upset about it or anything. And part of the uh, the goal, I didn't even know this, you know, when I started the podcast, but um, my goal is not to just bring futuristic technology to people, but also to expand people's thinking about things that they may think they know all about or like super well-defined. 
So I think that's what we accomplished here. Like addiction, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but I think you guys, have, it's obvious you guys have thought a lot about it. And I think this has been like a, a great conversation to talk about a lot more angles of it that most people don't consider. So I think and, you did a great job and uh, I'm glad you guys came and I appreciate you being here. I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about, you know, how, how you're implementing futurism and different avenues, you know, what, what, what your views on artificial intelligence are. Um, I think those things are more relevant to actually trying to tackle this, this problem of addiction and death and, and all those things than, than any of us realize. And thank you. Okay. Uh, can you guys hear me now? I'm, I just dialed back in. Yeah. Yeah. We hear you. Um, it'll be interesting, uh, Richard, to have you on the social exchange. I think it'll be a, a good conversation. I think what we missed here today is that we've talked about a topic that uh, there are things about it that we hear through and our worldview. And so when, when we, when people like Aaron and I are having conversations, it leads to things like uh, interviews where, uh, you know, we're sp we spent most of the time defending initial claims than getting to the further our conversation. I mean, I noticed that some of the questions I asked you in the beginning, I probably ended up asking more questions than you asked me. So it would be interesting just because of the the topic. I think it was a good, I, I, th I think that it was a great conversation. Um, you know, we we can't go deep on everything because again, this is like, you know, your podcast does that on addiction, you know, so we can only go so far, but I'm happy if we could at least open up people's minds to other avenues they probably haven't thought about. So even if we don't go deep down any of them, like just knowing that, hmm, yeah, what if you did have the assumption that nothing is addictive, you know, and where does that lead? I mean, that's like very useful. So I agree I with that. Good. Although as, as an interviewer, you, you've corrected me every time I've spoken rather than asking me a question about what I'm talking about. So I, it would be interesting to get into you don't have to get too deep, but it'd be interesting to get into it that way. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, uh, what's the best way for people to uh, listen to your podcast and get in touch with you guys? What What are some links for them or resources? You can find us on uh, the social. It's on uh, any podcast app that you might have. Spotify on, on Libsyn and our website, etc. It's modesofexchange.org. We have a Facebook okay. page that you look for the social exchange. You'll you'll find us. Great. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.